Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it has passed, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Each psalm in the scriptures is primarily not about you. There was a saying, I forget what her name was, but there was a pop artist in the 80s who wrote a song, something to the effect of, you're so vain, you think this song is about you. And I might modify it and say that you're so vain, you think this psalm is about you. (laughs) Primarily, this psalm is for you. It is intended to speak something to you, but its author is obviously the Holy Spirit, but through the Holy Spirit, it is Moses, who is writing a psalm considering the nature and status of the people of God in their sin in the light of an eternal and holy God. And this psalm is a psalm that is intended to direct you towards someone. That someone, of course, is Christ, as we know. There's no secret in where we're going 
Of course, this psalm is a Christian psalm. It is not an Old Testament psalm, and now we have the New Testament and things are better. It isn't as if God is wrathful in the Old Testament and God is kind in the New Testament. No, God is wrathful in the Old Testament, and he is kind in the Old Testament. And he is wrathful in the New Testament, and he is kind in the New Testament. God does not change. He is not like a man. God is immutable. God is all-powerful. God is full of wisdom, full of grace and glory. He is perfect, therefore he never changes in degree, never improving or unimproving, diminishing. And so God does not change from one covenant to the next. Although his covenants have greater graces from time to time as they progress into the unveiling of the new covenant, it is not as if God was simply a God of wrath and now we have Jesus to take away wrath and God has no more wrath for anyone. Jesus said concerning himself that if anyone does not believe on the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. Notice Jesus does not say comes on him, but abides. It continues and persists. Jesus says, I don't come into the world to condemn the world, for the world is already condemned. Even as Christians, we are so Uh, convinced by the wisdom of the world that we never give consideration to what the scriptures present is the state of all men. And so Moses writes this psalm, and he writes it in the context of the people of God coming out of Egypt. And with that, I believe it's been our practice in this church to show you how and to encourage you to do so, to take what took place in the Old Covenant uh, scriptures, in the Old Testament accounts, and to apply them to the Christian life. That was what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, that these things were done for us as an example, that we might learn to not uh, tempt God or to test him, that we might not fall in the wilderness like they did. And so this psalm is extremely applicable to Christians. One of the things that I would encourage you, when the scriptures speak with these sorts of language, uh, do not simply and immediately dismiss the warnings. That was one of the main goals that I had in our time through the book of Hebrews. The scripture is true. It is wonderful. It is profitable for you. And though we do see the element of the gospel coming out of this psalm, that is to say that Moses is pointing us to someone, it is important to listen to everything that Moses says while he tries to get us there. If we don't pay attention to what Moses is saying, then we will miss a great truth of God for how we live our lives. See, the gospel is not just about dying and going to heaven. The gospel is not just about the final state of man. Christ has a word for his people now. And because he has a word for his people now, we must, by God's grace, be opened up to the truth of his word for his people now. This psalm does not just instruct in serious matters of life and death, although that is its primary focus. It also radically shapes how we live our lives as Christians. As people who have come to place our hope in Christ, we are not simply just coasting. And that really is, I think, what Moses' aim here especially as we get to verse 12. But before we get there, I want to look at a few things. First, the nature of the author, what he was doing when he was writing this psalm, potentially what the circumstances were for this psalm. I want to look 
at God's eternality as Moses contrasts God's eternality with man's mortality. Notice that doesn't say man's morality. Man is not moral. Man is amoral. Man is immoral. Mortality is, if, if you're unfamiliar with the term, it simply means that man ultimately will die as, is the great theme of this psalm. From looking at God's immutability, his eternality, in the light of man's mortality, then Moses begins to discuss the sins of God's people. One of the things that I think is helpful to see in this psalm is that it's not, although it does apply to each one individual, there is a corporate dimension to Moses' lament. His prayer and his pouring out of his confession before God identifies with and encapsulates the sin of the people. And so Moses is a picture of what it means to be a good head of the people. And then from there, Moses, after confessing his sins, after confessing and identifying and joining with the sins of the people, presenting them before God, he then goes on to ask for mercy and to petition God that God would give a grace to his people that they would be delivered from folly, that they would be delivered from foolishness. And then from there, he then goes on to extol the virtue of one to come, that is, one who would consider the power of, Christ, of, of God's anger. And then from there, he then says he, a blessing. He asks for a blessing to come on the people. In the place of God's corporate people's sin, Moses is asking for a blessing to be put on them. Not just a blessing that they would fly away to a good place, but also that they would then have something be established in time. So with that outline, with that structure of where we're going, uh, let's begin to look at this. Moses is giving a uh, lament. This is not a rejoicing psalm. It is to some degree, of course, at the end of it, but most of it is heavy. The words weigh upon us. The severity of them, is even at a cursory impression of them on the man's ears or heart, the severity of Moses' subject is quite clear. And so commentators throughout the church have basically, although we're not told directly in this passage, they have basically understood it as falling in two potential places. One of them could be when Moses was about to take the people into the land and God reminded him that he was not permitted, as Moses goes up to the mountain to see into the promised land, being given a, a grace by God to know that the people would go in, uh, he is going up to the mountain and God says to come up to the mountain for the time for you to be gathered to your fathers is drawing near. Think about, think about that. Imagine walking with God and delivering the people from Egypt and sinning in a grievous way one time and because of that sin, you're not permitted to enter the promised land because there was not yet a full atonement given. And so Moses fell under the weight of his own failure. God calls him up to the mountain and declares to him, you are about to die. Uh, this takes place right before the people go into the promised land. And this is something that is attended to the people believing a false report from the spies who go into the land. And so the evil of the people and the death of Moses is really at the same time. It's happening almost, uh, almost at the same time. Alternatively, there's another potential, uh, potential time for this psalm to have been written. It could have been written after the people uh, hear this report of the, 
the spies that I was mentioning before. It's like the same moment, although it's separated by 40 years. The people repeat a thing. And in, going in, in being sent into the promised land, they decide of their own to send in spies. Now, God did not command them to, to send in spies. It was their own invention, and they brought about God's wrath upon them. He had told them to go into the promised land after showing them signs and wonders, destroying the nation of Egypt, delivering them with a mighty hand. He then says, I will go before you, and he commands them to enter the promised land, and they say no. And because they say no, they are forced under God's wrath to go through the wilderness for 40 years that that entire generation would die off before they enter the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb, being the two righteous spies who came back with a good report, were spared from that sentence. This is kind of speaking about the, the nature of sin and how severely it applies to all people. Out of the entire nation of hundreds of thousands of people, two were granted a pardon through that sentence on the people. And so potentially, Moses wrote this psalm at that time, considering what was going to happen to the people because of their sin. Whether or not it happens at the end of Moses' life or at the right after the people's sin, both would be a fitting interpretation for this psalm. I'm going to go personally with the, the end of Moses' life. I think that is more clear, but each one of them has something profitable to give us. Moses opens this lament by acknowledging God as the source of life, as the creator of not only the people, but also the entire world. Over and over again in the scriptures, God's role as creator and God's role as deliverer are always linked. It's not as if God created the world and then is doing a new thing with his people. The, the scriptures see them as an extension of one another. That is, God is not only the creator God, but the deliverer God who is forming a new people out of an old people, separating, just as he separated the waters from the dry ground. And so Moses begins this lament saying that God has been the dwelling place for the people of God, and that they are not their own source or originator, they're not their own cause for existence. The people of God did not originate in their own initiative, but rather God has been their home, and without God, they have no home, they have no place. And he connects that delivering dwelling place in all generations, even before the deliverance of Egypt, to the fact that God was the creator from the beginning. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, the Hebrew literally says we're given birth to. We, we looked last week at how the earth brings forth the animals and it brings forth the beast and the creeping things. Moses here is, is using the language of the earth bringing forth the mountains at the command of God. God says his word and the mountains are formed, the mountains come from the earth, and God is seen as the God who is eternal, unchangeable, immutable, perfect, holy, beautiful. Moses connects this, these two things, God's delivering nature and God's creative nature, the, the two aspects of God's work in the world, he connects them, and that is the foundation for examining the sin of man. So much of our approach in presenting the gospel begins with the sin of man, and yet the sin of man, if you were here in the first uh, part of the, the service today during the Sunday school hour, the Bible study hour, you may have seen some of this in the material that was presented. Before you can discuss sin, you must discuss God. You have to understand who God is to even understand what sin could be. Sin is not only a mistake, obviously sin is a tragedy, 
but his high-handed rebellion against a perfect and holy God who gave rise to you through his grace. And yet men perennially, continually throw off his knowledge, war against his will, and seek to be their own destiny shapers. They seek to be their own directors of life. In fact, if anything could be said about the spirit of America, it is that we are the makers of our own destiny. That is what kind of encapsulates what it means to be an American. And so, although Moses isn't talking directly to America, these things have deep and lasting application. Moses connects God's creatorial role and his delivering role to the mortality and frailty of man. He sees God as the self-existent one, the one who lives forever, the one who is his own cause for being, the one who wields time as a tool. Think about this. You have never been in a moment where you have not lived in time. And yet God is the same forever. He's from everlasting to everlasting. We saw during our study in Hebrews that even Christ himself was like Melchizedek, neither having beginning of days nor end of life. And so God is presented by Moses in this lament as one who is not like us. He's completely other than. He's transcendent. He is glorious. He is unlimited in power, and he forms the world over which he himself rules. And so in the light of the eternal God, it is right to consider your mortality. It is not right as a, as a human being to just consider your goals, your desires for life, and what you want to accomplish on your own, and consider that you will necessarily die, for all people die around you, and then sort of kind of say, well, I, might, I need to make my life count for something. The only right consideration of the frailty of your life is in the light of the eternality of God, because that is the standard by which you have to examine your life. That's the standard by which all men's lives are measured. He says, you return man to dust. Isn't this interesting that we have posited a Jesus that is nice all the time? If you've ever seen a picture of Jesus in popular art, popular culture, that wasn't high religious art, perhaps of the medieval period or, or even before that, most of the time Jesus is smiling in robes with glory and light around him. And we posit this Jesus, it's a composite image of our perception of Jesus, who we've made him to be. Someone who is always here to bless, someone who is always on our side, someone who will bless us no matter what, no matter where we go. And yet the, the scriptures present a God who is in control of everything. God calls to man and says to him to return to dust. He says, return, O children of man. For a thousand years are in your sight, but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. The, Moses presents this little image here, con contrasting a thousand years with even one night watch. In that day, the, the night watch was a thing that was carried out by the people who were guarding the walls of a city. And a night watch was usually divided into three or four portions so that the, the, the city wasn't under duress because one of the soldiers or a group of soldiers fall asleep. So they would change out the night guard uh, often. Think about the distance between a thousand years and not even a day, but even the night, and not even the night, but a third of the night or a fourth of the night. God is not like us. Men are frail and weak and small and will die. This is what Moses is trying to convey. And he does this in order that he, we would rightly consider the sin of God's people. 
Through Adam, each man is susceptible to decay and death. In, in saying children of man, as we saw last week, the Hebrew word for man is the same word as Adam or Adam. That, that word not only says something about Adam himself, but all men. And so he says, God says, oh, return, O children of man. This is not just some arbitrary power in the universe. One of the things I think we get wrong about the nature of iniquity and sin, although sin is a power, some people posit sin as an abstract existence, that there is some impersonable force that is not Satan and not God, but some element in the universe that is its own existence and that it's some sort of detached principle uh, a lot of this comes by the way of the Enlightenment and some of the things about Newtonian physics, which are far too vast for us to uh, think about for a while. But think about what you've learned about the second law of thermodynamics. The, the whole idea is that over time, things break down. I probably got the number wrong. Some of the physicists can... Second? Okay, there we go. I got the number right. That things tend to break down in the universe. That... Every system goes from a state of order to disorder or a state of disunity towards conformity. That is, heat spreads out evenly. Think about that all winter long. Uh, that, that time is, is winding down things. But the scriptures do not posit or present some sort of external, non-personal force that's at work in the universe that is just applying to man's death. Adam unleashes a sin and death in the world because he unleashes sin against a holy God. He cuts himself off from the author of life, and that author of life is right and continues to utter that sentence of death. It is not as if death is just this contrary idea to God and that God is somehow warring against it. It is his right sentence and condemnation against the sin of man. Consider how dark the wisdom of this world is. Think for just a minute about what you've heard from even Christians in popular culture. We see these things on social media. We see these things in anthropology and sociology classes in which they posit man as this neutral or moral being who is able to be shaped good or evil. The humanists, the statists of our day, have especially after Horace Mann and, and some of the things that he unleashed in the American education system, have basically saw man as this Lego and attaching certain things to the Lego, such as education, and views of government, and money, and, and different elements, that they could create something with this morally neutral man. And yet the scriptures present that all men are sinful, all men are children of Adam. All men walk in the rebellion of Adam. And in fact, Scripture says that we participated in some way in the rebellion of Adam. And yet most of the world, if you go around and ask people today, are they okay? Are they basically a good person? Everyone will say yes. Everyone is convinced that they are right about everything in their life. Think about that. In fact, this, this should even shape how we view progressing in theology and wisdom and maturity as Christians. Allow yourself to be wrong. If you walk as one who cannot be corrected even by the word of God or pastors or books or, or the counsel of the church throughout the centuries, you are your own God. And yet, Moses presents every man as not something who is 
Not someone who is invincible, not someone who is all-knowing, all-powerful, but is one who is swept away easily. Moses' recognition of the judgment of God takes on now a corporate dimension. It's not just applying to every man, although it does. It also applies to the people of God. Think about this for a second, that in the days of the flood of Noah, God did not spare one man, woman, or child except those who were in the ark. This is supposed to be a picture of the judgment of God against sin. Likewise, with Pharaoh and his army, they were judged under the sea, and yet Moses says that all people, even God's people, are taken away in the flood. Look at verse 5. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream. Think about the, the lasting nature of a dream. You, you are in a dream, you don't know when it starts, it begins, you're somehow conscious in the dream, you have some sort of memory of what happened, and upon waking you have moments in which the vision or the clarity or the thought is available to you, and then it is gone. They are like the grass that is renewed in the morning. It is the morning, it, in, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed in the evening, it fades and withers. Although it's now fall, think back to the summer, if you've mowed your grass, hopefully you have. Your grass is green. You come and you cut it down, hopefully with a lawnmower or maybe a weed whacker. You cut it down and what happens tomorrow? It's tan, it's gray, it's ready to catch on fire. This is what God is presenting to every man all the time about his life before him. It is like grass which fades away. For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. So after God's deliverance of the people of Israel upon his command that they enter the promised land, as we mentioned before, they rebel against his wishes. God wishes to bring them into a land of goodness, a land of prosperity, a land in which they would be blessed and dwell and their children would multiply, and yet they ask to go back to Egypt. This is what it means for us to be trapped in sin. It is insane. Think about this for a second. Put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. You've been living for 10 generations under harsh oppression, not only being segregated, but being diminished in society, having your children stolen from you and thrown away to murder. You are delivered by God to freedom through a period of maybe a few weeks, maybe at, month, at most like three months, you're delivered, you're brought into the wilderness, shown amazing things by the power of God, and at the first sign of trouble, the entire people wish to go back to slavery. See, we, we often think that we long for things that will bless us, the things that will be good. Tim Keller brings this out in his discussion about the, the sinful nature of idolatries and the things which are at work in our hearts that we're not even aware of. And one of the things he says is people never consider that if they got the thing that they most desire, that might actually be the worst thing that could happen to them. Because our hearts are divided. Even as Christians, we are longing for things that are contrary to God all the time. Though the evil of his people is so apparent and so absurd, we participate in this evil perennially, continually, daily. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. How do sighs happen? First you get really tired. <sighs> and then it's over. That's how long a sigh lasts. That's what he's talking about, the end of life. It's, 
It's something that comes quickly. Moses' words here are extremely terrifying. Are they not? Don't you feel the heaviness of what he's talking about? One of my favorite worship leaders is a lady by the name of Laura Hackett Park. Uh, She used to just be Laura Hackett, and then she got married to a guy named Jonas Park, and now she's Laura Hackett Park. And uh, she actually wrote one of the songs that we sing in our church uh, occasionally called Holy, not the one we sang this morning. But one of the prayer meetings that I was watching, she's at the International House of Prayer, and though I have many things that I don't really love about IHOP, I deeply appreciate their commitment to raising up worship leaders across the country and to cultivating the gifts of the Spirit and to, to loving the Scriptures, although they, I think they end up some places I wouldn't go. Um, she has this song that she sang, uh, and it wasn't... Uh, it, it was somewhat rehearsed, but it was, there was an element in the song that was spontaneous, And it was captured on one of their, they distribute some of their prayers and CDs. uh, And I've looked for it again, and I haven't quite found it. I know I have it. I just haven't made a diligent search. But she was praying. They were holding a corporate prayer meeting against abortion and the evils of human trafficking in the world, specifically in our country. And one of the things that they do at IHOP is they sing the word of God in a way that they call prophetic singing, in which they take some of the scripture and then just turn, put it, apply a melody to it and then utter it back forth to, to God in prayer. And the spirit of the Lord so moved on her one time to pray something, consider, to, to kind of wake up not only God's people who were listening, but in the spirit, all those who would have ears to hear about the fact that God sees every sin. And one of the things that she prayed spontaneously was that every deep and hidden thing that you thought that he didn't see, he sees and he knows and he's coming to judge. Brothers and sisters, when I thought about that and the weight of the iniquity in our sin, just in one issue of abortion alone is terrifying. It is dreadful. God's eyes are in every place. Even as Christians, we're tempted by the enemy. We don't take the word of God like a sword. We don't arm ourselves with this wisdom and truth. And so we are convinced that God doesn't see me. I'm by myself. I'm I'm not doing this thing publicly. No one will know. God will forgive me later. And yet God's eyes search throughout the earth, constantly going back and forth, looking for a heart that is undivided toward him. You see, we're, we're convinced of our own natural experience that we have the ability to get away with things. And that oftentimes is the case. And we trust in our normal experience of not being held accountable from sin to sin. And therefore, we justify ourselves thinking that it's a light thing, that it doesn't matter, that God will necessarily forgive me. Furthermore, Paul teaches us, not only do the scriptures present, not only in this passage, that God's eyes are everywhere, Paul teaches us that God himself has made all people aware of his divine attributes, his eternal power, the things which he has made testify of his invisible attributes, so that men are without excuse. Think about this for a second. One of the most common objections to Christianity today 
is posited by especially Western people who bring up the objection, what about the pagan in, in the Amazon who has never heard of Christ? What does your God say to him? And Paul tells us that God has made it evident to them. It is not as if God has revealed something about himself in the created order and left it up for men to see. He has revealed it to them. They know they don't have an excuse. At this point in the text, feeling the weight of everything that Moses is saying about the frailty of man, the eternality of God, the fact that all men are like grass that after being cut down wither and perish and are ready to be burned, Moses is right to ask this question. Who considers, sorry, the years of our life are 70 or reason by strength 80? Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Many of you are probably even thinking that we're being a little too serious in this sermon. And yet Moses is right to ask, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Many people consider the wrath of God according to some other idea that they have about God's wrath. They've created a God that is all-loving. In fact, I've even spoken to Christians who, whenever I ask if, if, if God sends people to hell, they always answer, well, God is a God of love. All men choose to go to hell. I agree that men choose their sin willfully, but Jesus said, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so Moses is right to ask the question. The question is rhetorical, and yet the answer is extremely clear. There is no one who considers God's wrath according to the fear of God. They consider his wrath maybe, if they've been presented with the gospel for a moment, even while it is being impressed upon them, but as soon as they can escape the knowledge of God's wrath on sin, they immediately turn to other things. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Moses has identified with his people at this point. He has confessed their sins. He rightly considers the nature of reality in the light of God's holiness and beauty and wonder. And after completely confessing, identifying with and accepting as the truth God's understanding of the state of all men and specifically the evils of his people who he is leading, he then asks for mercy. You see, we truncate the gospel we even truncate the gospel as we are living it daily. We move straight from, I just sinned, I can be forgiven. We never even consider what we have done, the nature of what sin is, or who God is at all, or what his righteous, holy, and necessary judgment against sin is. At this point, only after confessing his sin, is Moses able to ask for a mercy to be given. He does not diminish his sin. He does not excuse his sin. He receives it. He identifies with it. And then he proceeds. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Consider the boldness of Moses in this sentence alone, that the people of God have been warring against God's presence among them, and he is bold to say, return, return. In the scriptures, we see that the day of the Lord is a terrible thing. It's a horrific thing. Should the people not be ready for the return of the Lord? 
And yet for those who are ready, the return of the Lord is glorious. Though no man of his own considers God's holiness rightly, Moses asks for the Spirit's renewal, a mind that would rightly consider the end of life or the the shortness of life and a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. Look at this again in verse 12. He says, teach us, that's the mind, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Head, heart, together. Moses is asking for nothing less than a gospel renewal of the people of God. His confidence is in the merciful disposition of God so strong that he asked God to return and have pity. He then moves on to say, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. As one of the songs we sang that the Lord's love toward his people renews day by day and morning by morning. Satisfy us in the morning that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Look at what's happened because of the work of the gospel. Having a new mind that rightly considers the frailty of life and a new heart that is set on wisdom, Moses is then able to ask, let us rejoice in you all our days. Remember what was limiting in the beginning of the psalm? The days. The days were slipping away as a flood or a stream which just passes one hour after another, one day after another, all being destroyed and eaten by time. Moses is now able to ask for God to bless us in time that we may be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Though the anger of the Lord is like the night, it's quick, it's for a moment, God brings about newness, and in this new work that God is doing, Moses is able to ask for a blessing, to ask for a corporate blessing, not just an individual blessing. And I want you to look closely This blessing that Moses asks for is in time. It is not just eternal, although it obviously is eternal. Those who are blessed by God will have no end of life that is forever. But look at what he asks for in this next verse. My question about the text is this. Why should the lament of Moses bring us joy, even in the seriousness of all of the language that he uses? Your Bible is filled with passages like this. And in fact, this is not even the hardest text in the scriptures. If you want to see some stuff that's really eye-opening, go look at Ezekiel. Just read 1 through 9 in Ezekiel. There's some terrifying things that the people of God do. And so God is right to use this sort of language. This is what all sin is. So my question that I want you to consider is, why is this? a wonderful and joy-filled text. It doesn't feel like a joy-filled text. It feels like something that when, when we're having our devotional times, we just, you know, if we read three psalms that day, we make sure 89 is the first one, this is in the middle, and then we move on to the next one real quick. We don't really consider, we don't wrestle with the text, we don't want to be challenged. My, my appeal to you is that these texts, the ones that you want to squirm away from, are actually vital. And that if you always avoid what God says about sin, even if you think you are a Christian, then A, you're not understanding the full forgiveness of God. That's the end. But B, you're not even understanding your need for God and his forgiveness. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. 
Not saying that you don't have saving faith. I'm saying that what God wants to give you is a crucially true knowledge of your sin such that you would be able to be used by him to bring light to your fellow brothers and sisters as well as the world. Unless you understand what sin is, you will never preach the gospel. Because that is really the second aspect of the gospel. After understanding who God is, we can see the wrath that God has against sin because we can see what sin is. So if there is any sense of God's truth operating in our lives, we deeply know the truth of these things. One of the things I referred to was Paul's argumentation in Romans 1 that God has made it evident to you. I have told you nothing that you do not know in your conscience. Let me say that again. I have told you nothing today that you do not intimately know in your conscience. Paul says that those who are trying to war against God, they have a truth, but they suppress it. They push it down. Think of a person with a basketball in the water. What happens when you push a ball filled with water down deeper and deeper and deeper? Eventually, you will let it go and it will come shooting up. This is what happens at the end of life for a a man or a woman or a child who does not rightly consider the things of God. Think about this in the light of eternity, not just suppressing the truth, but being persistent in it as if that is your only thing that you're trying to do in life. That is what men who are sin-filled are doing all their days. Though the language that Moses Moses uses to describe man's sin is bleak, it is true. It is true language. This is the scriptures. We are not bringing something to this text that it isn't trying to already scream to us. Look at all the language that's used. The days of man are swept away like a flood. I've never been in a flood, but I've seen some on YouTube. Does anyone remember the tsunami that happened in Japan? Perhaps you saw it. What, what happened in Japan in the tsunami? Entire houses and small apartment buildings were moved away up to 10 miles from the coast of Japan into certain areas where the tsunami was the greatest. Everything was moved. Nothing was left. And that is what Moses uses as an analogy for the frailty of human life. Although it destroys all false hope that a man might have, Moses does not despair so as to lose the true hope. That is why these passages are deeply applicable to you. A, because it's the reality that you know already is going on in your heart, and it is the reality for everyone you ever meet, have met, or will meet, and it is the only answer to the plight. It is the only solution that is even possible. And so Moses, although he uses this terrible language to describe the sin of man, he does not become despairing so as to lose hope. Even though he had seen God's glory against Egypt, by the Spirit of God, he prophesies that God would show them the work. Think about, remember when we, what we talked about, <clears throat> which was our time period for this text. Moses is writing this after the Exodus has taken place. What happened in the Exodus? A series of 10 progressively large and terrifying judgments of God were unleashed one after the other on the nation of Egypt, culminating in the death of the firstborn in each household of the Egyptians. And 
it's important to remember that each judgment that God unleashed on the people was part of his delivering of his people. So we should not see God's wrath against sin as just a different flavor of God's mercy. Everything that God does, all of his judgments being righteous and true, all of his judgments include the judgments against sin and the judgments for pardon for those who come to the truth. And so God's judgments being righteous and true, we ought not to just rebel against the notion that God judges or has a wrath. And so Moses, rightly being moved by the Spirit, asks that God would show him something far greater than any of the plagues in Egypt. He says, let your work be shown to your servants. There is still another work to be shown to the people of God other than the deliverance from Egypt. Now, of course, as Christians, you might know where we're going. This work is nothing other than Jesus Christ. The wrath of God was shown as he said, Yahweh would have an outstretched arm against the people of Egypt. What did Christ do on the cross? Outstretched arms. This is the full picture of what it means for Moses to ask for a heart of wisdom, that they would be taught to number their days, and that that would become a source of blessing for the people. Not only did Moses, or not only did Moses ask this question in verse <clears throat> In verse 11, who considers the power of your anger or your wrath according to the fear of you? This is why I said every psalm is about Christ. is because Christ rightly considered the wrath of God in the fear of him. What did our Lord do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed persistently that the wrath, the cup of sufferings would pass from him. Christ prayed if there would be any other means that your people could be delivered from their sin, that they would be removed from the punishment of eternal death, let it be done. But if not, your will be done. Christ is the one who rightly considers the power of God's anger. That is why he is able to, as our great high priest and mediator, consider us and see us as sheep without a shepherd and be moved to compassion instead of filled with judgment. That is why Jesus is right to say, I did not come to condemn the world, but the, the world was already condemned. So Moses asks this rhetorical question. This rhetorical question is wonderfully and satisfactorily answered in Jesus Christ. Christ considered the wrath. And more than this, Christ did not just wrestle in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ, upon the cross, absorbed the wrath com completely. Christ encountered it through prayer in the Garden, and it became, as it were, sweat of blood or tears of blood. And then from there, he goes to the cross and encounters every judgment of God against sin in his own body. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. This is what it means for us as Christians to understand the fear of God and the wrath of God against sin and not despair as so as to lose hope. This is why passages like this, though they are bleak and sometimes offend our flesh, they are deeply needed. They are deeply soothing for the soul because there is only one answer for sin. Though the father was pleased to crush him, his wrath being fully relinquished, he raised up and vindicated his son. This is why in your gospel presentations, do not stop at Christ died for your sins. The whole thrust of the gospel is that God vindicates his son 
God raises him from the dead because it was not a, he was not able to be held by death because he is innocent and God is totally just. Christ, as the last Adam, undoes the curse and the weight of sin upon every man for those who are in Christ, not for those who are outside of Christ. And Christ himself does not return to dust, but he ascends up to the throne. Remember in the gospel, at the beginning of the, the church, the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, Peter says concerning Christ that Christ's flesh did not see corruption. It did not fall under the weight of the sin that is due on all the children of Adam because Christ is our new Adam. That is why Christ was raised from the dead and did not see corruption. Those who put their trust in Christ therefore not only escape wrath, but are one day going to be raised to life forevermore. Even before they are raised to life in the new in the, in the resurrection, they are restored to fellowship with God. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. We don't return to dust. Obviously, we die. We experience a bodily death. Our bodies are, you know, resting in the earth, undergoing the effects of time, for sure. But we are, we are at home with the Lord. The sureness of God's favor being so complete, the gospel being presented totally through what Moses is able to perceive by the Spirit, Moses is then able to ask for a blessing to work backwards from eternity past into time today to completely reverse the sin of God's people and bring about a blessing instead. Look at this. This is so important to see because this is what we are seeking to do in this church to deliver the, the people of God, not only in this church, but hopefully for all those who we will encounter in the future, to deliver them from projecting Christianity to a religion that is just otherly, just otherworldly, just tomorrow. Look at this. He says in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. In the prior verse, verse 16, he says, show your work to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Moses is able to ask for this because this is everything in the gospel. It's all included. Christ sends forth his spirit to bless his people and deliver them from futility. And through Pentecost, God answers Moses' prayer for the people. The, spirit, the Holy Spirit, of course, teaches us and leads us to consider our actions in light of eternity. This is why passages like this are so important for you. Because you live in a world of people who are constantly ignoring the end of their life. And they promote and are engaged in and seek to engage you in frivolities that are pointless. Not only are they pointless, some of them, the majority of them in our culture today, are destructive to your soul and war against your assurance. So that when you hear such a sermon, as we've presented today, you are terrified because you've never spent any time arming yourself with the gospel of Christ, with the full word of God, the full assurance of pardon and blessing for those who put their hope in Christ. This is why so many people are not only ashamed to admit their sin, they also are under the condemnation of the devil such that they continually... Th question to themselves, can I be saved at all? See, the, the enemy doesn't just bring temptation in, in order for you to rebel against God's authority. He always has another goal. 
which is to war against your conscience and to seek to convince you to abandoning the faith altogether. This is why it's appropriate to consider the serious aspects of life. This is how we apply such a sermon. Of course we do not despair. Of course Christ is still powerful to save. But he doesn't just save us for eternity. That salvation begins to work in time now. God wishes to deliver you, Christian, from your fruitless works. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have hobbies. I'm not saying that you need to be a legalist. What I am saying is that God has given you tools. God has given you amazing tools. At this moment in time, the greatest number and quality of theological works that have ever existed exist now and are instantly available to you every moment of your day. This is why I think the scriptures present the severity of the blindness of sin so clearly. In, our, in one of the songs we sang this morning, Holy, 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 it, it included the line, Though the eye of sinful man your glory may not see. This is the great indictment of, against sin in the world, is that God, through great pains of suffering and persecution to his people, has filled the world with Bibles and yet men are addicted to their phones. Think about that. That, that people, even, even, I mean, I feel indicted right now. That God has multiplied his word and made it available in almost every language. Of course, there are still people groups who do not have it. But for the ones who do, what excuse will they present at the final judgment? What excuse will they even have at all? They will have nothing. If Paul was right to say in Romans 1 that God has presented to every man his divine power, his eternal attributes, through the things that he's made, how much more weight of condemnation rests on those who will never even look at his scriptures and constantly war against those who would preach the gospel to them. Brothers and sisters, this is a serious matter. Your life is a serious thing. The gospel is deadly serious. But at the same time, through Moses' prophecy by the Spirit, he is bold to ask for mercy and pardon. And that mercy and pardon is not an excuse of God against sin, but is rightly presented to his children and is available to you. This is what it means for Christians to take and wrestle with the scriptures until God blesses us. Consider what Jacob did when he met the angel at at, uh, at Bethel. He wrestled him until the breaking of day. He did not let go of God until God blessed him. That is what I am encouraging you to do in your fight and war against sin. Don't succumb to the enemy. Don't hear the devil's condemnation in this sort of passage and despair so as to lose hope. Do not lose sight of Christ and his glory and wonder and his ability to deliver and save and to fill you with the spirit and to deliver you from frivolity and foolish things but take hold of the grace of God. Arm yourself, for there is war all around you. Let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would deliver us from foolishness. God, we also ask that you would forgive us for our, for our sins, that not only those sins which we've committed before coming to a knowledge of the truth, but those sins which we love, those sins that capture our hearts. God, we ask that you would work your grace in us. Father, we know that you are powerful and able to save. We know, Christ, that you died for nothing less than that your people would walk before you in maturity. 
Father, by your spirit, I ask that you would give confidence and assurance to those who are your children and that you would remove every false defense for those who rebel against you, that they might, by an act of your grace and mercy, be turned from their sin. Father, you alone can accomplish these things. No amount of human preaching or wisdom, unless aided by your spirit, could ever do anything, but you are able to save. God, I pray that you would give us confidence and that you would teach us how to apply your word and that it would be profitable for us and that one day on that glorious day we would see you face to face and we would have no doubt at all that you will say to us, well done.